Whispers in the Trees is a dark podcast focusing on the Great White North, surrounding all of the grisly truths from the kindest place on earth to the head-scratching unknowns hidden beneath the snow. My name is Mads, and join me on my journey today, exploring the crimes committed against the Indigenous children of Canada. Today's podcast includes racial slurs, child abuse, rape, child molestation, and murder. Viewer discretion is sincerely advised. Please understand that I myself do not like using the term Indian in reference to any Indigenous peoples. I myself am Métis, which is a Canadian word. I'm not sure if they particularly use it in the States, uh, but it means that I am part Indigenous, part European. Because of this, um, this is a very important case for me to cover and also a very difficult thing for me to cover. Um, with the age of it, it's really hard to kind of avoid the term Indian. I've been trying to replace it as much as I can, but if I miss some out there, my apologies. Um, it's also very important to me, considering how heavy this year has been. Um, many have been recovered, and it's been a very painful year for all of our communities. It's been hard. It's There's been a lot of hurt for all of us. It's a painful piece of our history, and it's one that everyone in the country just seems to keep brushing under the rug, and it needs to stop. We can't keep brushing it under the rug. Residential schools were facilities that were established by the Canadian government and run by the various Canadian churches. The main point of these so-called schools was to educate Indigenous children, otherwise known as indoctrinating them into the Euro-Canadian and Christian ways of living. They wanted to, in their words, civilize them, and in my words, destroy them. The early Europeans wanted to assimilate these people into their culture, but in order to do that, they had to destroy the culture that they had first. The residential school system is widely known as a genocide due to the systemic destruction of culture. The residential school system operated from 1831 until as late as 1996. I can't say I'm surprised about the early years. In 1857, it was actually a legal compulsion by the Canadian government to give up your native status if you wanted to be a Canadian citizen. The term for this is called enfranchisement, and the people that did it could carry around cards that checked off that they were now white and had given up the Indian in them. Individuals or entire bands could choose to do this, and if a man did it, his wife and children would be forced to follow suit. Women and children could not make the choices for themselves if they were married or, you know, if children were children, they could not make that choice. They had to have a parent make that choice for them because they were children. They were underage. This was supposed to introduce the European idea of a male hierarchy in the home. From 1876 until 1961, compulsory enfranchisement was actually a thing. Before this, the native person had to agree to it. At this time, the government could choose individuals and do it to them for various reasons. Usually it was things like attending university, because then they were too educated to be native, uh, marrying a European because now they were joining the European way of life, or being away from the bandlands too long. Um, because if you were to leave the bandlands, or as a lot of people call them reservations, um, in this time they had to have a um, permit to leave. So if they were outside of the banned land for this amount of time, they could be forcibly enfranchised. I don't want to spend too long on this, so I could probably make a whole episode on compulsory enfranchisement in Native cultures in Canada if you guys want to hear about that, but you can let me know on Apple Podcasts. Um, to get back on track, because I'm sidetracking, the last one actually closed its doors in Saskatchewan. The first one opened them in Ontario. There were 131 schools in total, but at the height of the operation, there was 80 at one time. The first one was originally a school for Six Nation boys, but they began to accept boarding students later on, and the system became widely known and far spread in the 1880s. 
This is when they got government assistance and they branched out from there. Most of the schools were located in the West, usually in like Alberta and British Columbia. Some were still in Ontario and Northern Quebec, but New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island did not have any, as the government believed that the natives were assimilated into the culture enough in this province, and the provinces did not need their aid. The government then made it mandatory for Indigenous children of Canada to attend these schools and made it illegal for them to attend any other school under the Indian Act in 1920. The government claimed this was to make First Nations societies economically self-sufficient. If that's what you want to call the horrors I'm about to describe, they wanted to make it so that these people could become less dependent on them for funding. Funding that in truth, if you think about it, they were owed to begin with. The governments handed the reins to the churches, the Roman Catholics operating three-fifths of the schools, the Anglicans one-quarter, and then the remainder were split between Presbyterian, Methodist, and United Churches. After 1925, the Methodists stepped out of the school system, and those schools mostly went to the United Church. The churches, they went into the Western Native villages and ripped the children from the arms of their mothers. These people did not understand English or French and did not understand the words being spoken to them. They maybe had a very bare minimum amount of understanding, but for the most part, they only understood their native language because that's what they knew. These were foreigners. It would be like if someone from another country came in. This is what it was. It was someone from another country coming in and just stealing your kids. There are paintings of the RCMP and nuns ripping kids from the arms of screaming, pleading, crying mothers. It's really easily Googled and it's really painful to witness. I can only imagine how hard it was to actually live these horrendous events. One survivor claimed he was actually lassoed and roped before he was dragged away from his home. The Inuit children that lived in the northern provinces, like the Yukon or Nunavut, these were a little bit harder for the missionaries to get to. The missionaries would have to wait for the seasonal movements so that they could find them. You see, because the Inuit people live in the Arctic Circle, the summertime you have mostly day or sunlight through the daytime and the nighttime you have sunlight almost 24 hours a day and then in the winter you have darkness almost 24 hours a day with very little sunshine because of this in the summer they would spend most of their time going out and hunting caribou and, and hunting anything they could on the land it's warmer there's more animals because the animals migrate here when it's warm. They live in the Arctic when it's cold. It's very fucking cold. And they just kind of leave. So you kind of got to rely on fish and walrus and whale if you can. That's kind of the way it was. So because of these seasonal movements, the natives were even more scared to leave their kids with the missionaries. See, they already knew what the missionaries were kind of doing in the West, so they didn't trust them to begin with. And with the way the seasonal movements were, they would have to leave their kids with these missionaries and leave and just go for months, if not years at a time. So they, would they wouldn't even get that Christmas break that a lot of the native kids would get in other residential schools. So because of this, it actually took longer to get the Inuit people to join on to the residential school program because the schools actually had to agree that they would send the kids home every night after school. They couldn't board them like they were in the West. They conceded. They built the school near the village. The kids got to go home every night. This happened in 1936. It was their one win. It would be the only one they would get for a very long time. The kids were forced into the institutions and the abuse was just the same as it would be in the West. There was very little they could do. It was the only difference that these kids are going to face was the fact that they could go home to their families every day. They got to hold on a little bit harder to their family ties. And then there was also the problem of the Métis kids. They were also included in some of the communities that were taken, but it kind of depended on where they were. 
these children faced their own challenges. Métis children were already seen as outsiders in both Native and European communities as they were in the old words half-breeds. They're not white enough to be European, but they're not Native enough to be part of a band. They made their own bands and they had their own educations within their own communities. They learned some of the European ways and they learned some of the Native ways. They became their own band. They became the Métis. The government didn't want to deal with them. They didn't want to give them any resources to help. They didn't want to tell them if they had to go to the schools. And they didn't want to tell them if they didn't have to go to the schools. They handed that jurisdiction over to the provinces, and the provinces didn't care either. The provinces left it to the priests and nuns, and the priests and nuns got to decide how badly each child needed to be assimilated. Typically, this would be decided through the three classes of Métis, which were as follows. Please note that this is quoted. This is not my words. I really, really hate saying this. It makes my skin crawl just a little bit. Number one was those who live in varying degrees of conditions, the ordinary settled life of the country. Two was those who live in varying degrees, the Indian mode of life. And three was those who, and they form the most unfortunate class of the community, are the illegitimate offspring of Indian women, and of whom white men are not the begetters. Basically, those that are already living like a settler, those that lived like the native people, and those that are considered bastards of the native people. The last two classes were the ones that were usually put in the schools, but it was kind of known that it didn't really matter, because the more kids that the schools had enrolled, the more money they got from the government. So the more money they got, the better it was. Come on. Greed. We know how people work. These kids were taken from their homes and from their families, and taken to what on the outside would appear to be just a private school. I've been to one. I've been to a couple of them now. They don't look horrible on the outside. On the inside, they housed really deeply rooted horrors. The kids would be separated from their families for long periods of time and forbidden from speaking their own language or practicing their cultures. These children would be told to strip down naked the nuns would de-louse and bathe them, and then they would give them a haircut. Their hair was cut short. In some schools, they would be shaved bald, something that would have been unbelievably painful for these children in an emotional sense. In many indigenous cultures, your hair is your link to your ancestors. In other tribes, it represented your strength as the braid going down your back follows your spine. It's a connection to your spirit and to your own self. All tribes have a different reason for growing your braid, but it's always followed. It's always a practice in every band, and it's always been cherished. This braid that represented so much to these kids was chopped off and thrown in the garbage bin in front of them. One young boy remarked that he thought his mother had died because this happened to him because in their band, they cut their hair as a sign of mourning. The closer the person to that person who gets the haircut, uh, the closer the hair gets cut. So when he had his head shaved, he thought someone like his mother had died. When the hair cut was done, kids were then given uniforms and they would be assigned to their new number. The number would be usually embroidered onto the uniform. If they were lucky, they would be given a new name. Their new life would now begin. Their life was strictly regimented by their timetables, and the schools were definitely not co-ed. Boys and girls were kept very separate, separating siblings to further destroy the family ties that they had. Chief Bobby Joseph of the Indian Residential School Survivors Society, he said that he didn't know how to interact with any girls not even his own sister, beyond a wave in the dining hall, something he was probably punished for 
because he was interacting with someone who was not the same sex. These children were given the absolute barest minimum of education, focusing mostly on prayer. And then for the boys, it would be manual labor like agriculture, light industry work like woodworking and tinsmithing, and then for the girls, domestic work like cooking, sewing, and laundry. These children had the lowest grades as they would only attend the school part-time, and then they worked for the school the rest of the time. This was supposedly to make them ready for the workforce, but in truth, the schools could not function without their labor. The girls did the domestic work while the boys did maintenance and some agriculture work, which meant that they went out hunting or farming so that the schools had food to feed the kids. Obviously, these kids were not paid, and by the time they were 18, they only had the education of a fifth grader, and they would be kicked out of the schools. They would just be sent away because the schools didn't want to deal with them anymore. I bet you're wondering what this strictly regimented timetable looked like. Oh, let me tell you. The kids would wake up at 5.30, and every morning before breakfast, they would attend Mass. After mass, they would do some chores. They would have time to wash themselves, like brushing their teeth, brushing their hair, and getting dressed, and then they would make their beds and clean their spaces. Then, at 7.15, the priests and nuns would then be sure to walk through and make sure that the children had washed themselves and done their chores to the proper standard. Notes would be taken by the nun if there was anything that needed specific attention, ratty clothes, or something that needed to be punished. You know the deal. At 7.30, they would head to breakfast, before more chores, which was referred to as fatigue time, from 8 until 9. School would begin at 9, with a 15-minute recess, and lunch would be at 12. They would be sent to prepare for lunch, and then their lunch break would be from 12.10 to 12.40. Until 2, they would be given time for recreation, and then they would head off for more school and or trade work. At 4.45, they would be more fatigue time, before some more recreation time. At 8, they would have to pray and go back to bed. Every single day, this is what their schedules look like. Ridiculous. Fucking ridiculous. Every day, they went to school, they cleaned their school, fix their school, and retrieve their own food. How ridiculous is that? These kids were only between 9 and 18. This is ridiculous. So on top of that schedule, that you were working a lot, mostly keeping the school running from this age, they were fed very, very little. The schools had very little funding, so even when the funding had an increase through the 1950s, they struggled. There was a breakfast of porridge and milk, bread and tea. If you were sick, you were allowed a little bit of butter for your bread. For lunch, they would have either soup, meat, or fish, with possibly some bread. Desserts would be then rice and stewed apples or stewed rhubarb, or bread and milk with water. If you were sick, you would get tea instead of water. For supper, working kids got meat, the rest got hashed meat, which is the shitty parts of the meat, chopped up really fine and mixed with vegetables. So they also possibly got some bread. Same dessert as lunch. And again, tea instead of water if you were sick. So imagine this barely sustainable diet. And then on top of that, in 2013, a man named Ian Mosby discovered that some of the schools actually subjected their students to experiments surrounding nutrition. These children didn't know, neither did their families. There was no consent given. There was no knowledge of any of it. They just did it. They just chose to do it because these kids in the government and the church's mind back in these days were less than human. These experiments typically included restricting access to essential nutrients, and then on top of that, restricting even more medical and dental care so that they could see what restriction on diet as well as fixing those diets 
would do to these students. Oh my god. Fucking ridiculous. So there's this. And now, when the kids were caught disobeying rules, even speaking a few sentences in the only language that they knew, it would end in severe punishments. Remember, these kids did not know English or French going into this. They only knew the indigenous language that they grew up with. They could not speak this, and they could not even write this in letters home to their family. The adults at the schools would read the letters and check before sending them out to the banned lands so that the families could have these letters. Stories have been told of sexual, physical, emotional, and psychological abuse at the hands of these so-called teachers, of these so-called men and women of God. Survivors have spoken of being chained to their beds, beaten, strapped by a belt, and having needles shoved into their tongues for speaking their native languages. This on top of inadequate food, poor sanitation, no access to medical or dental care, and, just to top it all off, overcrowding. There was a massive, massive death toll. I am not blaming specifically religion. I think religion can be a beautiful thing, but when it is used like this, it is incredibly ugly. When it is used to destroy like this, because it can, it is so ugly. I wish I could say that there were only a handful that were really bad, and in truth, some kids were not abused. One-tenth of survivors claimed to have a good stay with the school, a quarter stating that the school had no impact on them, and the rest describe horrors and pain. There were some good in these schools, but the truth is, the way I see it, even the good people were involved in a very evil corporation and a very horrible plan that had a damaging effect. The majority of these kids were abused, and those that quote-unquote weren't were still subject to being treated as lesser than and as savage. They were trying to erase the culture, and that is still painful and beyond agonizing and damaging. A boy who went to school in Moose Factory recalled a time when he was forced to pull his pants down and then lay across a chair in the middle of the play area. All of the boys in that area would then be forced to form a semicircle around him, and he was then lashed ten times with a belt across his bare bottom. He couldn't remember what was worse, the lashing or having his friends and peers be forced to watch. A girl who attended Cecilia Jeffrey found out that her cousin, a young boy who had originally arrived at the school with disabilities, had died. She learned this through listening to other girls gossiping about it. She didn't learn about it from the teachers. She didn't learn about it from the principal. She learned about it through school gossip. She didn't get any details about how, why, when, or anything related to his death. She tried. She tried. And when she got nowhere, she began to cry. And then she was being scolded for being a crybaby. She was told that big girls don't cry. This scolding was repeated when she cried at the news of her father's death. She began to be teased by the other girls, and the girls used the nickname Crybaby against her. Some have come forward saying that when they broke rules, they would be placed in dark closets for prolonged periods of time, and they would not be given real food. They would also do another haircut on children as a punishment, buzzing it short as they knew it had such a deep, profound impact on them. Some schools had a cat-o'-nine-tails, which is, if you don't know, a multi-tailed whip, some even having hooks or knots at the ends of each uh, whip head. Some schools just had whips, but usually it was a belt, but they used whips and cat and nine tails were kept for when straps and belts proved not to be enough for the quote-unquote naughty children in their midst. Because that 
works so well. Beat the naughty out of the kids. That works wonders. The problem is that it doesn't. It's been proven that increasing stress and increasing fear in children causes them to lash out even more, which causes them to become abused more. It's an endless cycle. Kids who are not abused will learn a lot easier than kids who are abused because they won't be caught up in that stress and that fear and that anger and those emotions if they aren't understanding. Kids lash out because they don't understand how to express these emotions. And unfortunately, when they're being abused, they feel these emotions that they don't understand how to cope with or they don't understand how to express, and it just comes out worse. It just repeats itself. It's so ugly. One girl came forward explaining how at the Mohawk Institute, if the girls wet their beds, they would be given what they called shock treatments. The principal would bring in a battery and the girls would be forced to put their hands on it, forcing an electrical current to go through them. They would be forced to do this three separate times each occasion that they wet their beds. At St. Anne's, the survivors came forward and said that there had been a chair that had straps connected to a battery. Oftentimes, it was described as being green wood or metal. The student that was being punished would be forced to sit in this chair. They might be willing to sit down and they might go a little bit easier, but more often than not, they were forced by being pushed and strapped in. After they were strapped in, they would be shocked. It was an electric chair. One boy at the same school was actually beaten to death for stealing a communion wafer. Marion McFarlane, who worked from the Port Alberni Institute from 1962 till 1963, was actually fired from the school after trying to save a child from a severe beating. The school organist, which was the pianist, the woman who would be playing the piano for mass, or the organ for mass, whichever one you want to call it, uh, the woman was beating a girl of roughly six years old with a piano leg when McFarland stepped in. She punched the organist to stop the beating, and the organist quickly went and complained to the principal, and McFarland was fired. The principal was more worried about losing the organist for the school than he was about what she was doing to the little girl. One young girl at St. Anne's would later recall when she got her first period. She would have a nun rub her breasts and her stomach moving down between her legs, looking her in the eye and telling her she had the devil inside of her and that they had to get the devil out. She was then placed in a straitjacket and assaulted for a period of time. Sexually assaulted when she was 13 years old because she had her first period. Imagine. Some kids were forced to eat rancid horse meat and fish to the point of throwing up. Student-on-student -student violence was encouraged by staff for various reasons, usually just sick enjoyment. One child was lured to the basement by another student, the older boy claiming that he had a surprise. The younger student followed, expecting sweet treats like a cake. He thought because it's his classmate, it could only be a good thing. As they got to the basement, he was surprised by 30 to 50 of his classmates, who quickly beat him down and tied one rope around his neck and another around his legs. They began to play tug-of-war with him before becoming bored of this game and tying the rope that was around his neck from a pipe hanging from the ceiling. He was saved by a supervisor who sent him to the hospital for treatment. He was given cream for his neck, gauze to cover the cream, and a collar to place over the gauze, and sent to school the very next day. The supervisor had no care of the details of what happened, this same young boy had had a yardstick broken across his back because of his dyslexia, making it difficult for him to learn to read. When investigated, the nun at the hospital claimed she could not remember the boy, she could not remember treating him, and she could not remember his injuries. And when he was asked, the supervisor claimed he couldn't recall the attack at all. These are just some of the horrors of the residential schools suffered at the hands of those who claim to be servants of God.
Disease ran rampant due to the lack of proper sanitation of the schools, the proper diets, overcrowding, and general proper care for the children. Tuberculosis, influenza, whooping cough, measles, typhoid, diphtheria, smallpox, and pneumonia were rampant. Tuberculosis is still rampant in northern Inuit communities as a result of the exposure. Louise Moi, former student at Capel Residential School, says that they would see a girl die every single month at her school. She recalls them always being dressed in light blue, and she would be told that the girl who had died would be going to heaven by the priests and the nuns. But the priests and the nuns' words never dulled the ache of another lost schoolmate. In 1907, government medical inspector P.H. Bryce reported that 24% of previously healthy Indigenous kids were now dying in the residential schools. This number didn't even reflect the four children who ended up dying at home where they would finally be sent when they were critically ill. The residential schools did not want them dying on their watch. It didn't look good on them, so they would send them home when they were critically sick. Bryce reported that anywhere from 47% to 75% of students who left the schools would die shortly after returning home. The 47% is from the Hagen Reserve, Hagen Reserve on Alberta. My apologies, I'm not good at pronunciations. I'm sure we know this by now. Um, and the 75% came from File Hills Boarding School in Saskatchewan. Anyone who agreed with Bryce on this, or who would bring up the atrocities being committed in the schools, would just be found with a general lack of support and a general disinterest. Nobody cared. Nobody who cared about the Aboriginal kids at this time. Children were known to run away from the schools and attempt to run back home. When this happened, they would be chased down and brought back to the school. Sometimes they would escape. Sometimes they would die on the long trek home. It's really, really sad to think about. One such child was Cheney Wenjack, whose death in 1966 sparked national attention and inquisition into the schools. Cheney was born on January 19, 1954, and at age nine, he was whisked away from his home at Ogaki Post on the Martin Falls Reserve. He was taken over 600 kilometers away to the Cecilia Jeffrey Indian Residential School, and he was given the Christian name Charlie. He and his three sisters were separated like all 150 students at the school had been from their siblings, and their life began. Cheney was said to be a funny little boy who was incredibly good with wordplay, even though he ended up dying before he was able to read. He escaped with two of his friends on October 16, 1966, while they were on the playground for recreational time. They only had on light cotton clothes, but they did not care. They booked it off the property, not giving a single shit. It's unclear the real reason why they all ran off. Cheney's sister said there was a possibility he had been sexually assaulted, some claimed that he was just lonely and possibly wanted to see his dad. The first night, the boys walked for eight hours before stopping at Cheney's friend's destination, which was their uncle's house. The man took his nephews to check some tracks while Cheney stayed at the home. He was resting up, I guess, before walking the five kilometers to meet them. After this, he set off on his own to make his way to his own home. His friend's uncle advised him to follow the railroad track so he could ask any workers he would come across for food, but Cheney disregarded this. He said he would be fine. He had a few matches in his mason jar, and he left. He thought he would be fine until the weather quickly turned harsh. It hit negative 1 to negative 7 degrees Celsius with snow and freezing rains. I believe this would be negative, no, this would be 30 to 19 degrees Fahrenheit. The boy Cheney made it 36 hours and 19 kilometers before he died from exposure. Or at least that's what they think. His body was also covered in bruises from repeated falls. In the end, he had covered 60 kilometers and his body was found a week after he had gone missing. It was found next to the tracks by a railroad worker.
Cheney's mother asked for her son's body to be returned home, but she was met with refusals from the Department of Indian Affairs, citing the expense. She had to ask again before they finally conceded and made the arrangements. His father was not even told of his son's disappearance. He received a letter from the school stating that all of his children were doing well, even though he could not contact them. He was kept so little in the loop that at his son's burial, Cheney's father saw the autopsy marks on his son and he feared he had been stabbed. Police had to reassure him and confirm to him again how he had died. Although the outcome was horrifically tragic for this family, the event caused the Crown and Council to look more closely into the schools and the effects they were having on these kids. If these kids were willing to run away like this and face the outside, if they were willing to die, what are they facing inside the walls? In the 50s, the government had already begun to have doubts about the efficacy of schools. They were beginning to understand the effects that they were having on the children. In 1951, the Indian Act was amended and the schools would no longer be known as schools, but as child welfare facilities. Because that's going to work so much. They're going to abandon the half school day, half work day approach. Because they're no longer working as schools, the power over the schools is handed over to the provinces instead of the churches. Despite this decision, they continued to add even more schools in the north so that they could have a cheaper way to educate the Inuit children. It was a cheap way out of having to meet actual educational standards. It was claimed that these children were more primitive than the other tribes, so they needed more training. How disgusting is that? The church was basically pissed about this decision. They firmly believed that what they were doing was right. Because of this, we had what would become known as the 60s stoop. The children would actually be taken away without the consent of their families and without the consent of the authorities themselves. Children would be taken from their families and placed with middle-class white families, hoping to assimilate them that way. It was hoped that the children would be raised by white families and learn the white way of life that way, because that's so much easier and makes so much sense. Sure, I guess. The practice of placing Indigenous children with middle-class white families, as well as the severe overrepresentation of Indigenous children in the child welfare systems, continue even today. Indigenous youth takes up over 52% of kids in the welfare system, even though Canada only has a 14% Indigenous youth. The scoop itself is said to have lasted from the 60s until the official end of the schools, in 1996. I wouldn't call that the 60s, I would call that a few decades scoop. But who am I? Who am I? Despite the church disapproval, the Department of Indian Affairs took over the control of the schools, which marked the absolute end of church involvement. Even with the development, the abuse and lack of funding continued on, and many teachers and workers did not have the credentials to work the positions that they had. They were hired anyway because, again, in these days, who cared about the indigenous kids? Slowly, the indigenous children were brought over to the public schools, but problems continued to persist. The indigenous kids were bullied by the other students, and the children were often excluded and discriminated against. They were able to reach a higher point of education, but at what cost? They were discouraged from going to post-secondary schools because of the discrimination. Who wanted them there, apparently? They so desperately wanted to destroy the indigenous in the child that they were willing to destroy the child to do it. It took until the 1980s for courts to begin to respond to allegations of abuse. Out of the 38,000 claims of physical and sexual abuse, fewer than 50 were convicted. In 1988, eight former students of St. George's Indian Residential School, which was located in Lytton, BC, sued a priest, the government, and the Anglican Church of Canada. 
both the Anglican Church and the government admitted fault and agreed to a settlement. In 1995, 27 survivors from the Alberni Indian Residential School filed charges of sexual abuse against Arthur Plint, while also holding Canada and the United Church vicariously liable. In addition to convicting Plint, the court held the federal government and the United Church responsible for the wrongs committed. This set a precedent that the churches and the government of Canada could be sued as a singular entity within the country. We got one, guys. We won one. We got somewhere. Something. The Canadian government finally apologized in 1998 after all of the allegations and court cases came to light. It took them long enough. They established a $350 million plan to try and aid the survivors of these schools. The money was used to fund and start the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, but this apology really wasn't felt by the survivors. They only apologized for the physical abuse. They didn't admit to the genocide, nor to the psychological or emotional abuses that these kids suffered. A national class action was filed in 2002 for compensation for all of the residential school survivors and their family members within Canada. In 2005, Canada and just about 80,000 survivors reached the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement in which Canada promised individual compensation for survivors, additional funding for the Aboriginal Healing Foundation, and the creation of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. A second, more solemn apology was given on June 11, 2007. This apology was felt a little bit more by the Indigenous culture in Canada, but it's still not quite as the survivors came forward with their stories, the Métis children had to fight just a bit harder to have their stories be told. They were left out of the compensation process, as the compensation in this time was only granted to children who attended federally funded schools. Remember, the Métis children were not part of this. This was handed over to the provinces, and the provinces handed it to the churches. Survivors of the day school program were finally told that they could file for compensation in 2020. The last school closed in 1996. The Métis children had to wait until 2020. The survivors of these schools are still dealing with the trauma today, as are their children and as are some of their grandchildren. These people were taught that their way of life was inferior and that they themselves were inferior. They were treated as less than human. These children, instead of having the love and care of a family, were thrown into the cold confines of a genocide. The effects that this had on these children was massive. Many turned to different substances to aid in the coping of their trauma. One study suggests that nearly 30% of residential school survivors would turn to alcohol or other substances, sometimes even both, to be able to cope with what they went through. You could say it started in the schools. The girls of St. Anne's in Ontario recalled taking turns in the bathroom with a towel, wrapping that towel around their neck and tightening it and tightening it until they got dizzy. They called it getting high because sometimes they would get high, sometimes they would go unconscious. They just wanted an escape. These children would only know the pain that they had suffered at the hands of these schools. They would only understand how to teach and how to raise the way that they were, causing spikes in child abuse from the survivors as well. Children need a nurturing caregiver to teach them how to cope with stress and anger and fear and all of these other emotions. They need nurturing caregivers to aid in the healthy development of relationships and social behaviors. When a kid is abused, they will very likely continue on to abuse their kids, and then those kids will go on to abuse their kids, and so on and so forth. It's an incredibly nasty cycle that can continue until someone finds the power to break it. I'm not saying that all survivors will do this. I'm not saying that all survivors of trauma will turn into abusers or 
anything like that. But I am saying it is a common thing. And it is something that we need to have empathy for. Because even though it is something that is incredibly hard for the person being abused to be going through, we have to remember that the person abusing was abused as well. It's intergenerational trauma. And we have to find the root of the trauma so that we can end the continuation of that trauma. I also am not trying to use this as an excuse for them because abuse is abuse is abuse. It is still wrong, but it is an understanding and it is the way to empathize. Intergenerational trauma is real and it is something that we need to understand, study, and think about to make it stop to help these people. And then the kids who are not being abused watch their parents and their grandparents suffer. Of the 30% of survivors that turned to substances, some of them had children that would be left alone while their parents would then go and cope with their pain, forgetting that they were then causing pain to their child because they were then neglecting their child, because they were then going and getting high or getting drunk, some just not caring, so encompassed in their own pain that they couldn't think of the other person's pain. Because of these two problems, there's a high rate of unemployment in Indigenous communities. It makes it hard to get a job when you're addicted to substances or you have an assault and abuse record. Because there's a high rate of unemployment, there's a high rate of homelessness and poor housing in the communities. Those that live on the bandlands reported in 2002, 17% of homes are still overcrowded. And overcrowded means that more than one person in a bedroom. And I believe that's more than one bedroom because that doesn't count if it's like a parent-spouse situation. Suicide rates in Indigenous populations is twice that of non-Indigenous populations. This number is pretty firmly believed to be linked to the residential school. So if you weren't having a parent abuse you, watching your parent fade away to drugs, you very well may have had your parent killed at some point. Maybe not a parent, but maybe an aunt, an uncle, a brother, a sister, a cousin, a family member that lost themselves to this school system, this so-called school system. For those that didn't have these issues, they face their own challenges. The memories and pain that their parents and grandparents hold. The tears that they hold back when these subjects get brought up. The quivering voices as survivors speak of their experiences. The fight for any kind of reconciliation. The fight to just be recognized. Mental illness rages through these families, and studies have shown that mental illness that started with the survivor can be passed down through generations, through raising children in the environment of having a mental illness, as well as through genetically passing it down. Intergenerational trauma of Indigenous communities is still being studied, just as the trauma of the Holocaust survivors is. It is just as deep and just as painful. Just this year, there have been over 1,000 unmarked graves recovered from various residential school grounds around Canada. Over 150,000 children were forced into these schools, and for the most part, it's still swept under the rug and tried to be forgotten. I barely learned anything about residential schools spending only a couple of classes on it when I was in a specific First Nations Studies course. The school curriculum barely mentions it in regular courses that I was exposed to. On one good note, today's youth is working hard to overcome their pain and their parents' pain. Between 2010 and 2017, the rate of kids who would not graduate high school dropped from 40% to 35%. Youth smoking rates have cut in half 
with only 1 in 10 kids smoking instead of 1 in 5. Fetal alcohol syndrome numbers are falling, and mothers who reported smoking while pregnant have fallen from half to one-third. I could not be more proud of these numbers. Despite the challenges that they are still facing with the lack of work and the overcrowding of housing, they are still working so hard to better themselves, to aid themselves, and to move past the pain that they suffer. There are still ways to go, but the improvements have been incredible. Outside of Canada, this is something that isn't heard about. It's thought to be something that is deeply rooted evil secret of the past. But is it really? The last school closed its doors in 1996. Your mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, even your cousins could have been in that school. There are still survivors dealing with the trauma of every piece of banned land. All you have to do is look. If you or anyone else are suffering from violence, please reach out for help at your local helplines. You can find your province-specific ones at www.dawncanada.net forward slash issues forward slash crisis dash hotlines forward slash. Again, www.dawncanada.net forward slash issues forward slash crisis dash hotlines forward slash. This website is an amazing directory for all of the Canadian hotlines to help with different kinds of abuse. They are all listed by province so you just have to scroll through, find your province, and find the hotline you need. It's a really easy to use directory and I really really appreciate it. If you or someone you know is suffering from a mental health crisis or just need someone to talk to, you can dial 833-456-4566 for the Canadian Suicide Prevention Hotline. This is available 24-7, 365, and it is available in English or French. Again, 833-456-4566. And for my American viewers, your hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Again, 1-800-273-8255. They are also open 24-7, 365 a year. But if you feel that it is more severe, please dial 911 or visit your local emergency room. You deserve all of the help that you can get, even the help that you feel you don't deserve. If you want to help me continue with my passion and bringing these dark secrets to light, please consider buying me a pizza at buymeacoffee.com forward slash whispers podcast. Thank you so much for your continued support and for listening. Please stay safe out there and look after yourselves.